Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week we're laughing away the January blues with a look at the science behind gags and giggles. And before that, a genetic therapy to fix an inherited immune disorder. Scientists have tied the world's smallest knot and why antioxidants ain't all they're cracked up to be. I'm Georgia Mills. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, this week scientists in the US have taken the first steps towards fixing a genetic defect that leads to an inherited immune problem that leaves sufferers prone to serious infections. The team at the NIH have used a DNA editing technique, which is called CRISPR, to correct a mistake in a gene that arms immune cells so they can kill bacteria and other infections. The team are doing it on bone marrow stem cells that produce immune cells that then circulate in the blood. And the idea is to fix a patient's own cells safely in the dish and then return them to the patient. Harry Malik. For most of my career, I've been interested in an immune deficiency called chronic granulomatous disease. Patients with this suffer from recurrent infections because their circulating white blood cells, called neutrophils, fails to produce hydrogen peroxide. And it's used by these cells that engulf microorganisms to kill those microorganisms. And if you don't have the hydrogen peroxide, then the cells can't do their job. And that's why the patients suffer from recurrent severe infections. They get pneumonias, they get infections of their bones, they can get liver abscesses. So our goal is to find a way to fix them. And why do they have that condition? What's the underlying process that leads to them lacking this natural hydrogen peroxide disinfectant? So this is an inherited problem. The majority of patients have a mutation in a gene carried on the X chromosome. One treatment is bone marrow transplant, which can cure the disorder, but because it involves collecting cells from another person, those cells may see the new host as foreign and therefore One can get high risk from this disease, from graft-versus-host disease. But knowing that a transplant can cure means that if we could take the patient's own cells and fix them, we might have the same outcome, but without the graft-versus-host disease. So talk us through what you're actually doing then. Which cells are you working with, and how are you manipulating them? Most of our patients, we are able to treat them in a way that makes the stem cells come out of the marrow and circulate in the blood which we collect using a large blood centrifuge. And then we use gene editing techniques to fix the mutation that's in those cells. 
And when you do this, what fraction of the cells that you started with actually get fixed? We're pretty excited by the fact that we've been able to reach somewhere in the range of 25 to 30 percent of cells being fixed in the dish. However, the critical cells are the small subset of those cells that are able to go back into a patient and engraft long term. And our other studies in mice show us that we probably get into about 10 to 20 percent of the long term cells that can restore marrow. And having fixed at least a proportion of the cells in the dish, is the, the goal that you will put those cells back into the person, having ascertained they're safe, of course, so that they would go back to the bone marrow and then act as a, a long-term, long-lived supply of healthy immune cells so the patient would have enough healthy cells in order to fight off infections? I actually don't need to repeat what you've said because you're exactly correct. The goal here is that if you don't hold these cells too long in the culture, they retain their ability to re-engraft uh, in the patient they came from. And if you've now got fully corrected cells, they're able to serve as long-term, maybe even the life of the patient, to make neutrophils that now can produce the hydrogen peroxide. Do you have any evidence that that can be achieved? Have you done the experiment where you've taken the cells and put them back into, admittedly not a person, but something resembling a person, i.e. a mouse, to see if they're capable of doing that? There's a very helpful mouse model such that these mice have some defects in their immune system which allow human stem cells to be engrafted in the mice. So from the point of view of the mouse's marrow, it's like a little mouse person, and one can actually follow these mice out for, in, in the case of the, the paper, we followed them out for five months. That's a long time certainly not the lifetime of a person, but long enough for us to say with some certainty that we have corrected the long-term engrafting cells that could fix patients if we actually took these and engrafted them back into people. Now, what about the safety side of this, though? Because it's quite an unnatural experience for these cells to be in a dish, to have their DNA edited, and then to go back into a person again. What are the risks and how sure are you that we haven't introduced other changes into those cells' DNA so they could, for instance, spawn blood cancers? You raise one of the key safety points that many in the field, including our FDA and other regulatory agencies, are concerned about. In the paper, we describe a number of sophisticated ways in which we look to see if we've made changes in other places in the genome. At this first pass, it looks as if we haven't made detectable changes at other places in the genome. We believe, however, that before we were to actually do this in patients, that we need to do more work in that area, both to satisfy ourselves and to satisfy the regulatory agencies that we've made no untoward changes in other places in the genome. Harry Malik from NIH in America there, and that study was published this week in Science Translational Medicine. Now, what do a clove hitch, a sheet bend and a sheep shank all have in common? They are, of course, as any former scout will tell you, all knots. But I bet they couldn't tie an 819 knot. At less than a millionth of a millimetre across, it's the world's smallest knot, and it's just been tied by a team at the University of Manchester. They made the molecular tangle in a test tube using a sequence of carefully controlled chemical reactions that used iron catalysts to bend and entwine short strings of carbon-rich molecules. 
tying the knot and fusing the ends. Tom Crawford heard how from lead author David Lee. What my group's done is uh, tied the smallest, tightest knot uh, that's been tied to date. So the knot has eight crossings in a 192-atom strand, and that makes it the tightest knotted physical structure ever made. How small is this thing? The width of the molecular strand is just half a nanometer, so that's um, less than a millionth of a millimetre. So that's 10,000 times thinner than a human hair. And the length of the molecular strand, if it was uh, opened out, is just 20 nanometers. So that's 500 times smaller than a a red blood cell, one of the smallest cells in the body. Wow, tiny then. (laughs) Very, very small indeed, yeah. And when you say a knot, um, do you mean like me tying my shoelace or like a fisherman's knot? Yeah, it's the it's exactly the same principle, but um, in in mathematics, a knot actually describes a, a closed uh, loop. So this is ex- exactly like the sorts of knots that you uh, would tie in your shoelace or a, a fisherman uh, would tie, except um, it's got no end, so it, the, the the ends have been fused together. So if I tied my shoelace as I normally do and then sort of the two straight bits that are left if they were fused together yeah if you just glued those together then you'd get what a mathematician would call a closed knot and what does the knot actually look like obviously it's too small to to see it's very very tiny but if you um uh, if you use a technique um to look at the positions of the atoms which we can do very precisely with a technique called x-ray crystallography you can see that it looks a little bit like a four-leaf clover with the strands wrapping around the outside of the uh, of the of the leaves of the four-leaf clover and then they cross over and under each other uh, eight times that leads me quite nicely into my next question actually how how did you make these knots so you can't simply um, uh, tie molecular strands um, in the same sort of way that you would tie a, a strand in the in the big world into a, into a knot. They're just too small to grab hold of the ends. So what we use is a technique called self-assembly, in which the molecular strands are, are woven around metal ions. The metal ions are sticky um, in certain places on the in positions of the ions, and the the strands, the building blocks, wrap around those in a uh, precise way, forming the crossing points in the right places, just like it happens in, in, in knitting. And then once all the pieces are assembled in the right way, then we use a chemical catalyst to fuse the ends of those strands together to close the loop and form the completed knot. So now that you've made this knot, what uses do you see for it going forwards? Uh, knotting, of course, is also um, a, a very similar process to weaving. And so uh, it should be possible for us to use the same techniques that we've used for knotting molecules to actually uh, weave molecular strands. Uh, And in that way, we hope to be able to make um, sort of strong, flexible, light materials out of um, molecular strands. And how does weaving lead to stronger materials, for example? So the benefits of um, weaving fabrics we can see uh, in in our big world, of course, it's uh, mankind has been doing it ever since we moved out of the uh, of caves and used knotting and weaving for making fabrics, but also for making tools and, and materials. It allows fabrics to stretch in different directions, to hold their shape, and to be. Uh, light and strong and, uh, um, and and flexible. So an, an example of where this might be useful for weaving on a molecular level is, uh, say, Kevlar, which is um, 
a type of sort of super strong plastic which is used in bulletproof vests and, and knife-proof body armour. And Kevlar's chemical structure is basically tiny, a whole lot of tiny straight rods that pack very closely together, a bit like pencils stuffed tightly in a pencil box. What we may be able to do is actually weave strands of, of materials instead of having things that are packed closely together, and maybe that will lead to uh, say lighter and stronger and more flexible materials than having them all packed tightly together like they currently are. And there was me thinking it was my headphones that made the world's smallest knots. That was Tom Crawford there with Professor David Lee at the University of Manchester. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Georgia Mills. Still to come are antioxidants the answer to staying healthy or are they just a drain on your wallet? And does it really matter if Hollywood gets the science wrong. But first, a new prototype app for smartphones has been made aiming to help older people get out of the house and go on walks. It's called Walking for Wellbeing and aims to combat the growing numbers of people who find it tricky to get about. I spoke to the University of York's Dr Chris Power, who is technical lead on the app. We do know from reports such as those that are highlighted on the Campaign for Loneliness that over 51% of people do live alone over the age of 75 and that 59% of adults that are aged over 52, they report bad health. And we know from the work that we've done in the project that if you perceive yourself to have bad health, that's going to prevent you from wanting to undertake the physical activity, which will then... Uh, initiate a cycle of loneliness that's going to happen in isolation. So what we want to do is try to, as opposed to looking at fitness and trying to drive people out to be more fit, we want to try to encourage them to overcome those things that may, they may be perceiving as stopping them. So things like perceived barriers in the environment, looking at uneven pavements, and other obstructions to their journeys will keep them from getting out. So what we tried to do was look at an app that would help people get out from the house and plan journeys that would help them encounter those things that would help them but avoid some of those obstructions. Okay, so how is this app going to work? The app works by having people input a set of preferences regarding things that they would be interested in uh, encountering, so things like heritage or nature, um, as well as things that they like to avoid, so things like uneven pavements or slippery surfaces or places where people might park bikes in pedestrian walkways, for example, or cars overlapping where they would park on the road. The app has preferences attached to all of those things. It will pull information from the environment. We're looking at things like OpenStreetMap and other open link data sources where we could pull information uh, regarding, for example, bus stops or um, places that particular shops are and possibly some crowdsourced data. Then the app will plan particular routes that will take people to those things that they want to see, but avoiding those things that they don't. And this could be either for just getting out for a walk, or it could be when trying to undertake some sort of task, like going out to the post office or going out shopping. The demographic this is aimed at is the elderly, but isn't this also the same demographic, the least likely to own a phone and have apps? Well, that's certainly changing. So when you look at things like the Ofcom report in 2015, we actually find that between 2012 and 2015, there was an increase to over 50% uptake of smartphones. And that's something that is a, a big change that's happening. We know from a Deloitte report in 2016 that for people over 55, over 60% of them also have a tablet. So we're certainly seeing those demographics change. Certainly for the baby boom generation, or as some of my colleagues like to say, the rock and roll generation, it's definitely the case that they're having major uptake of mobile technology. And where are you with this app? When are you hoping to have it uh, rolling out to the public? So currently right now, we're in a prototype stage. We've done a large number of 
uh, iterations on the prototype and we're pretty confident the journeys we've designed are solid we've had good feedback in evaluation sessions from our users but right now we don't have the back-end technology implemented so it's probably looking at another round of funding to try to get this move to market and we're investigating follow-up funding with rc uk and also with innovate uk possibly looking at venture capital for a spin out in order to be able to get this app to market I suppose you've got to be careful when you do something like this that you don't direct people into a quarry or something like that. You need to exactly. get it right first time. There's a number of different things that we have to look at. And one of those things, such as safety um, and documenting the different risks that might come along, are really, really important. So we wouldn't want to rush this out. Chris Power from the University of York there. Now, maybe one of your New Year resolutions was to go walking a bit more. Or perhaps, like Tom Crawford, you've decided to improve your diet maybe thrown in a handful of antioxidants. But does the science agree with you? Time for our weekly myth conception. We're now well into the new year. How are those resolutions going? If, like me, you've decided to eat more healthily, maybe you've been stuffing yourself full of antioxidants. They're good for you, right? And they attack free radicals, those naughty things flying around your body causing damage to your cells and making you age faster. At least that's what we're told by the so-called health experts... Let's see what science has to say on the subject. The story begins in 1945, when the wife of chemist Denham Harmon suggested that he read an article in Ladies' Home Journal entitled, Tomorrow You May Be Younger. This sparked his interest in the process of ageing, and a few years later, whilst working at the University of California, Berkeley, he proposed that ageing is caused by reactive molecules that build up in the body as byproducts of your body's natural processes and lead to cellular damage. These are what he called free radicals. Harmon himself described his discovery as a thought out of the blue. Scientists began to rally around the theory of free radical ageing and that antioxidants such as vitamin C and beta-carotene were able to neutralise them. The antioxidant boom occurred in the 1990s, with the word entering into the public domain and supplements being added to foods and taken as tablets. It wasn't until the early 2000s, however, that scientists began testing the theory and they encountered some interesting results. Two separate studies compared mice, which were genetically engineered to overproduce either free radicals or antioxidants, with normal mice, and they saw no change in the lifespan in each case. Further studies in humans found antioxidant supplements negate the health-promoting effects of exercise and may even lead to a higher chance of death. The increase in life expectancy, which is often attributed to antioxidants, is in fact likely to be a byproduct of a generally healthier lifestyle. People that take antioxidant supplements tend to be more health conscious in general and as a result are likely to live longer. The bottom line is that scientists are still unsure of the exact roles of free radicals and antioxidants in the body and more studies are required. Most researchers do agree, however, that free radicals cause cellular damage, but this is not necessarily a bad thing. In many cases, it seems to be a normal part of the body's reaction to stress. We are certainly not being oxidised and therefore do not require antioxidants to save us from impending doom as the health experts would like us to believe. Nonetheless, the global antioxidant market was worth $2.1 billion in 2013 and is expected to continue to grow by a further billion by 2020. I'll leave you with a quote from Professor David Gems from University College London which sums it all up quite nicely. It's a massive racket. The reason the notion of oxidation and ageing hangs around is because it is perpetuated by people making money out of it. 
No more expensive superfood to me then. Just a bit of good old-fashioned fruit and vegetable. Now that was Tom Crawford and uh, we'll be pulling the rug from under another myth conception next week but in the meantime if there's a dodgy bit of science that you have come across and you'd like us to probe it send it in to chris at thenakedscientist.com and we will get on the case. And now scientific inaccuracies in the media artistic licence or a serious problem. Liam Messon has been finding out. Do you get annoyed when Hollywood gets science wrong? Our followers on Twitter certainly do. Any film that has sound in space, because in space, nobody can hear you scream. The plot of 2012 relies entirely on the phrase, the neutrinos are mutating. When a power surge causes all the fuses to blow. I find radiation in films is rarely portrayed accurately. It generally seems to fill in as insert nebulous evil sounding sciencey thing here. Uh, and that tends to be the thing that bugs me the most with films about science, because I suspect it further colours people's opinion of anything labelled nuclear or involving radiation in reality. Some of our listeners there, the last of which raises an interesting point. Can inaccuracies be damaging? I spoke to David Kirby, a senior lecturer in science communication studies at the University of Manchester, and asked him if movie mistakes can be harmful. Yeah, well, if you think about, let's say, you know, health medicine or genetics, having something like that inaccurate is a problem because it can affect the ways in which people approach decisions about their health. So, for example, the ways in which comas are depicted in movies, that's been shown to have an impact on the ways in which people think about the notion of a coma, how long it goes on, what's your chances of actually recovering. Should we then be making our fiction as scientifically accurate as possible? Meet Wellcome Trust-funded comic book writer Sarah Kenny. Her latest project, Surgeon X, is set in a world in which the antibiotic apocalypse we've been fearing has indeed come to pass, and bacterial infections are no longer treatable. I asked Sarah to tell me exactly what is Surgeon X. First and foremost, it's a comic book, and it's a comic book that's set about 20 years in the future in London, um, in the midst of an antibiotic apocalypse. It's also an app, and on the app you can read the comic, but on certain panels you can click on the speech balloon and you'll have um, interviews from experts um, will tell you a bit more. We're calling it behind the speech balloons. What would you mean by an expert? A comic book expert? It's um, set in a medical future, so we have surgeons, microbiologists, we have obviously all the sort of scientists that have informed the story, but also we have a historian, we have a philosopher, ethicist, um, somebody who's working in surgical education. So the experts are kind of a range of people who have an interest in, in medicine, but they're each looking at it through a different lens, if you like. Do you see what you do as in any way, I mean, gets educational if you've got, it's littered with documentaries and these actual experts you're speaking to? Was there any hope to kind of I think maybe raise awareness or understanding to the public through what you're doing? Yeah, definitely. One of the big questions people ask is, <laughs> is this possible? Is this future that you've painted just a, a really extreme future? But the more I researched this, the more I had a lot of experts saying to me, actually, you're not being extreme at all. We could go in this direction. And I like to think of the story of, as a bit of a thought experiment, if you like. So in this thought experiment, I'm imagining what if we don't come up with new antibiotics in time. And in this sort of thought experiment as well, I have this sort of far-right government that have brought in what's called an Antibiotic Austerity Act. And so rather than medical 
um, judgments. It's 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 kind of more more of a sort of the societal benefit an individual has, and so therefore you get elderly people, disabled people, maybe sort of drug addicts, people on the fringes who are not qualifying for antibiotics, and that gives you quite a fierce and unjust environment. Work like Sarah's might help us have these discussions. But does it really matter if we don't get the science right? David? Sometimes a movie can be very useful for science, even if it's full of inaccuracies. For example, the film The Day After Tomorrow, you know, widely seen by many scientists as an example of a a sort of bad science movie. And it has a lot of visually exciting things like super tornadoes that destroy Los Angeles and New York being... uh, swamped by a giant tidal wave, clearly things that are inaccurate. But if we think back to the time period, 2004, the film was incredibly useful in raising public awareness about the idea of climate change and global warming. Some people were able to do surveys before and after the movie came out and show that the movie actually raised awareness pretty significantly amongst the population about global warming and about climate change, and especially about the political implications, given that it was an election year in the U.S. So despite all those inaccuracies, the film was incredibly useful um, for the scientific community. We opened this question up to Twitter recently, and we had, a, we had one user tweet us that uh, film inaccuracies can be an opportunity to educate the public. Is there any truth to this? Oh, yeah, certainly film inaccuracies can play a a major role in education. And a lot of teachers are using films. You can essentially show it to students and say, what's wrong with that? And allow them to try and figure it out based on what they may have learned previously. So they can apply their knowledge to a particular situation. So it develops those sort of, you know, critical thinking skills or problem solving skills. Over time, has media got more or less scientifically accurate? Uh, Well, It's gotten much more scientifically accurate, uh, especially within the last 10 to uh, 15 years. You've had an increase in the number of scientists who've worked as consultants on movies because filmmakers realize that audiences nowadays are really sophisticated. We've grown up in the age of CGI. And so there's a desire for more and more and more realism. And, you know, realism has historically been tied to science. Uh, So, you know, one of the ways to add realism is to add some scientific plausibility. And also with our, you know, Internet age, if you don't get it scientifically accurate, uh, people will let you know pretty quickly. And that's not good publicity for your, your movie. Thanks, David. So scientifically accurate or not, it seems the main thing is they get us talking about science. In the movie War Games, they hack the Pentagon using an Atari. I'm sure I remember a scene in Blade 2 where the vampires all ducked to avoid the effects of an ultraviolet grenade because they could see the light coming. Liam Messin was speaking with David Kirby from the University of Manchester and Surgeon X author Sarah Kenny. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Georgia Mills. And now it's time for the main part of the programme, and this week, laughter. We're going to be exploring why laughter evolved, what babies find hilarious, and whether robots can learn to tell jokes. But first, do you find science itself funny? Well, comedy troupe Festival of the Spoken Nerd are running a best-of show at Soho Theatre in London, and all of their comedy is about just that. Katani has been hearing all about it. (laughs) 
perfect for the couple who have everything. I'm getting us both cryogenically frozen. So it's you and me and Walt Disney. Hello, I'm Helen Arney. I'm one third of Festival of the Spoken Nerd. We are three comedians who uh, all have a background in science and have decided that what the world needs more than anything else is a comedy show that is not taking the mick out of science, that is not the same old science gags about two atoms walking into a bar and all of that stuff. Um, this is a comedy show that is science. We do experiments. Uh, I do songs that have been peer-reviewed. Steve does um, crazy things that he's been around the world investigating. Matt does stand-up maths. Uh, Matt Parker, that is, the UK's premier slash only stand-up mathematician. Give me a cheer if you're ready to plot some parabolic functions! And between the three of us, we've created this thing that we did for our own pleasure, really, to start with, um, that was trying to make comedy that felt like real science. Ladies and gentlemen, 230 volts and a pickle. any science that you apply to your gigs? Yeah, Are there any scientific experiments or thinking about things scientifically when it comes to trying to make people laugh? I do think there are some parallels between science and comedy. Because when you're a scientist, you have a hypothesis. You think that an experiment is going to produce a certain result. And you have to be open to the idea that that result isn't going to go the way you think it is. When you're a comedian... Your hypothesis is, I think this joke is funny. Therefore, this audience will laugh at this joke. And you take it out there, you say it on stage, they don't laugh. You have to accept that your hypothesis was wrong. The evidence says this audience does not find that joke funny. No laughter hypothesis. <laughs> you, you have to accept that. And you iterate, you change how you do it. You Maybe there was something wrong with... Your method, maybe how you delivered it was wrong. Uh, Maybe you forgot one of the variables. And of course, the secret of comedy is timing. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, timing. And and science as well. And you're my man. And I want you to understand how it feels when I hold your hand. So I'll draw us. We're doing a song that I wrote years ago. It's called Statistically I Love You and it's a mathematically accurate love song. (laughs) And um, I try and do this song very beautifully, very seriously for the audience. And Matt and Steve decide that it's not interesting enough on its own. So Steve decides to do PowerPoint slides to go with it. And Matt decides that that's not good enough and he brings out an overhead projector... (laughs) to do <laughs> to do slides on as well and the whole thing becomes this like improvised comedy jazz with slides I'm going to make you mine I'm going to make you an element of the set of things such that they are mine <laughs> I've always wanted to be in a band right I never thought that band would contain me a ukulele powerpoint and a slide projector but it does and it works Helen Arney, and she was being interviewed by our own cat Arnie. And yes, 
they are related. Kat is Helen's sister. And Helen is performing on the Festival of the Spoken Nerd. They're currently on at the Soho Theatre in London. Now, laughter isn't just found in comedy shows. People are laughing their socks off all the time. But without sounding like a grouch, what is the point? When and why did our species, for instance, start laughing? And is laughing unique to us as humans? We're joined now by neuroscientist Sophie Scott. She's at University College London. Sophie, why, what actually is laughter? Why do we do it? Well, it's a very interesting behaviour because if you ask uh, human adults about it, it's, it's something we like and we'll talk about. But we always, we'll say that we laugh at jokes and comedy and humour. But if you actually watch us, and this is done very nicely by Robert Provine, what you find is it's a completely social behaviour. It's something we do when we're with other people. Most of laughter occurs during conversations with other people. And even then, we're hardly ever laughing at jokes. We're laughing to show that we understand people or we agree with them or we you know, we, we know them, we like them, we're part of the same group as them. So... We're doing a huge amount of social aspects of our interaction. We're actually managing with laughter. But when I'm actually laughing, Sophie, what's going on physiologically? What's my body doing? Because it's quite a distinct thing, isn't it, laughter? Everyone can recognise what a laugh is. Exactly. And it's actually a very, very basic way of making a sound. So when you start laughing, what happens is the intercostal muscles and the diaphragm, which I'm using right now to produce a very finely controlled flow of air out through my larynx, and that's how I'm, how we all talk. You, instead of doing that, it, your, these muscles start to do very large single contractions, and that just squeezes air out of you. And you squeeze the air out under very high pressures, so you start making sounds you wouldn't normally make. But each one of those individuals, ha, ha, ha sounds, literally, is air just being pushed from you. You could, be, you could achieve the same end by jumping up and down on someone's ribcage. It's very, very basic. And that's probably why, you know, babies can do it from a very early age. There's nothing complex to it at all. It sounds very similar to coughing. It is extremely similar to coughing and also, of course, to crying, weeping. So it's, it's a very basic, very uncomplex way of making a sound. And something we don't understand is if there is a competition between talking and breathing and laughing, laughter will win. It, there's something about the motor control of it that overwhelms everything else. And that's why you can tell if someone's talking and they start laughing. It's absolutely unmissable in their voice. Now, when do we think that this behaviour first evolved? Throughout history, humans have been very prone to think that we are the only animals that laugh. Uh, Nietzsche thought only man laughed. I think Aristotle thought only man laughed. But actually, you find it in other animals. It's very easily observed in other apes. So gorillas and chimpanzees, um, orangutans, they laugh. And it, it's, it's very like human laughter. It looks and sounds like human laughter. But it's also been described in rats... So um, it's possible that there is more laughter out there. And I think at the moment it's probably fair to say no one's really looking for it, but it would be very interesting to know about exactly how you can trace its appearance in the evolution of mammals, because that does seem to be what it is. It's a, it's a mammalian behaviour, which is not something associated in a straightforward way with humour, because chimpanzees and rats aren't laughing at jokes. They're laughing at interactions and they're laughing at things like being tickled. So it seems to have a, very, a much more basic role for mammals, and potentially there's a lot more of it out there. Is that why they're called howler monkeys? Oh, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> now, when you say that it's not just us, there are these other mammals that laugh, how do we know they're laughing and what do they laugh at? Um, the main thing that they seem to laugh at is very common with humans. It's tickling, and I know... Uh, my, my colleague Casper Adiman is going to talk more about this in humans, but tickling is very common across animals that laugh. That's what it, Tickling is what gets rats laughing, orangutans laughing, gorillas and humans. But it's also play, and all mammals play when they're infants. It's a very important 
uh, mammalian behaviour. And Pankskep, who's done some very beautiful work on, on rat laughter, he first noticed this, this sound that actually when rats were playing with each other and he wondered if that was laughter and started tickling the rats to see if it made the same sound. But he says at its heart, laughter is an invitation to play. It's kind of putting the interaction onto a playful, unthreatening, enjoyable basis. And that's a very, very useful way of managing interactions for animals. And, and mammals are very often highly social, so it matters to them. Now, what about looking at our own species for a minute then? What about the ubiquity of laughter? Do we all do it? We do all do it. So laughter is found, um, you know, in terms of a, the universality of it, laughter has been... Um, seems to be a, a basic human emotion. We, you don't find cultures where people never laugh. You find cultures where people laugh more and laugh less. There are cultures where public laughter can be quite impolite, but people will still laugh in private and they'll still laugh in other situations. So it seems to be, as far as we can see, a genuinely universal emotion, though it can be socially quite variable how, you know, to any one extent within any one culture, how appropriate it is to laugh from minute-to-minute -minute basis. Is uh, the ability to have a sense of humour universally represented amongst humans and, and also the ability to laugh in this way amongst mammals? One thing that I would be clear is that we, you do need to um, distinguish humour from laughter because as far as we know, all humans, to one extent or another, will show laughter. Laughter is a, you know, is, is a very, very common behaviour, although with the proviso it can go wrong in some psychiatric conditions. But that's not the same as everybody having the same kind or use of humour. And humour varies really widely across, even within a culture, you know, based on how old you are, you'll find different stuff funny and even all sorts of other stuff influences that. So what you find is that humour is incredibly variable and complex and plastic. And then our behaviour to it, which is often laughter, can actually be very, very familiar. So is there a sort of humour centre in the brain which that can then activate um, or be activated by things like the tickling centre? So if I tickle you and you laugh, that will also elicit the same reaction as if I tickle you with a joke and you laugh. It seems not to. So what people have put people into scanners and they've tickled them. And um, what they found is that tickling laughter is associated with increased activation in the hypothalamus, which is quite an old part. You know, it's a tiny part of the brain involved in hormone release. And in contrast, if you scan people while they're listening to jokes, what you essentially get is the language system working a way to help you understand what the jokes are. So they do seem to be quite distinct. You can, that we've definitely got a hallmark of brain activation that seems to be associated with tickling, and it's different from understanding a joke. And have you got a joke for us to finish on, Sophie? Um, what's green and invisible? I don't know. What is green and invisible? This lettuce. <laughs> it's perhaps not the, oh. best, not the best for radio. Sophie. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's Sophie Scott from University College London. No shortage of humour there. We'll see if our uh, robot can top that later on in the show. Um, so when do we actually start laughing? Casper Adiman is a developmental psychologist at Goldsmiths University of London and he's been investigating baby laughter. Hi Casper, so why babies? How have you been doing this research? Uh, well, I, I, you know, the first thing I noticed is that babies seem to laugh a lot more than us and because they were doing it, it seemed an important thing to look into. The starting point for doing it was just by asking parents. Uh, we did a big survey all around the world of um, the things that made their babies laugh and the situations and the people. Have you found out what babies find funny? 
Uh, well, it completely echoes what um, Sophie was just saying, really. The thing that makes babies laugh is people. It's, um, well, tickling, but it has to be tickling done by someone that is really trusted and close to you. But then beyond that, everything that makes a baby laugh is a social interaction of some kind. OK, so well, the tickling thing, it's funny, isn't it? Because that's you laugh, but when you're being tickled, it's also kind of quite hellish in a way. <laughs> so it, it's a strange link between the sort of laughing and also being in a bit of peril. Yes, I mean, I think that's part of uh, why it sort of it only works with someone that you um, you know very well. There's a, there's a great bit in one of Darwin's books uh, where he observes that little little children don't like being tickled by strange men with beards, <laughs> um, and um, and yet yeah, they seem to find it great when it's their parents doing it. Uh, and so, what did you find was the most? If I wanted to do stand up for babies, what would the most funny thing I could do be? Um, so. I wouldn't try getting a whole room of babies and trying to make them all laugh. Um, actually, I've, I've worked with some people in theatre. They say the best way to do that is to drop things. Babies like it when adults make mistakes. But if you've got a one-on-one situation with a baby and you want to make it laugh, uh, my main advice is actually to take it as seriously as you possibly can. Really tune in to the baby's own tempo. And when they notice that you're actually really attending to them, they're going to be delighted and you will get big smiles. And then once you spot the thing in the interaction that they really catches their eye, then you'll get laughs. OK, so when you're playing peekaboo or something with a baby and they're laughing, why are they laughing at you? What's the point from, I guess, an evolutionary point of view for a baby to laugh at you? Well, I guess there are, there are two parts to it. One is that they're just very happy. They are enjoying themselves and it's, it's, a, it's an indication of that. It's a measure of pleasure. But it's also... Um, a, a social signal to you, like as Sophie was saying, an invitation to play. It's an invitation to keep going with this. In, in some ways, you could think of laughter as the opposite of crying. A, ba- a crying baby is telling you, please stop this. Uh, a <laughs> laughing baby is saying, no, no, carry on. This is delightful. OK, so it's kind of a reward for you that yeah. you're spending this time giving them attention. Were there any other sort of discrepancies between what babies found funny and compared to sort of older children and um, adults? So, I mean, I think, you know, not unexpectedly, what babies find funny is the foundation of of things that that come later. It's quite slow to build up. And so, um, you know, jokes really don't start to to be recognisably as jokes until, until really quite late. Children from about two or three years old start to understand... Uh, situations where you use the wrong word. So, oh, uh, look at the dog when you're pointing to a cat. And that's not really a joke as yet, but they find it funny because it's wrong and they recognise that it's wrong. But it's only till about six or seven that they actually sort of really understand what the jokes are and are not just laughing because everybody else around the table is laughing. And do we know when babies actually try and be funny back and make mummy and daddy laugh? That is a lot earlier. So that, I mean, typically I'd say it's around about a year old. And what's um, what often happens, I mean, the classic mistake parents make, baby blows a big raspberry into their food. Parents um, laugh, hilarious, find this hilarious. Baby realises this is a way to make parents laugh and, and keeps repeating this action again and again and again. Oh, no. So, <laughs> so they've learned that, oh, I can make you laugh by doing this. Oh, no, so you use positive reinforcement by <laughs> laughing that baby should always spray yeah, spaghetti think... everywhere. <laughs> Thanks very much. That was Casper Aziman. 
You're listening to The Naked Scientist. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. We're talking about the science of jokes and humour this week. I'm going to share with you a joke, Georgia, which I think ranks up there as my favourite all-time joke. It was in fact told to me by my biology schoolteacher. And uh, so here we go. Are you ready? And we can try this. Um, we can also try this on Casper and Sophie as well. I went into a shop the other day and I said, can I have a packet, please, of helicopter flavour crisps? And the shopkeeper said, I'm really sorry. We've only got plain. Um, <laughs> you got a laugh your off Sophie. Favorite trick. <laughs> Very I think, polite. <laughs> I think I can Social do better. Social laughter, yeah. Well, I have some jokes for everyone here. Um, so what kind of a tree is nauseated? It's a sycamore. <laughs> That's quite clever. Uh, what do you call an official that has a pavement? A magi street. And finally, <laughs> see if you can get your head around this one. <laughs> what do you call a chimp walrus? Obviously, no. you call it a chimpanzee horse. Are you t- I'm, I'm calling the police. <laughs> I was going to say, are you feeling like you might like to end your life anytime soon? You too. Um, well, you can blame, actually, our next guest, because Dr Graham Ritchie from the University of Aberdeen um, actually wrote the computer programme which wrote those jokes. He studies artificial intelligence, or AI, and he's been looking for a long time into finding a, th- a theory for humour. Why actually did you set out trying to make a joking robot? We started this in the early 90s and at that stage artificial intelligence was trying to model virtually every aspect of human behaviour except for some of the more emotional and creative facets of human life. Nobody had looked at humour or jokes and we figured that AI was a good way to to model human behaviour and to understand what was going on. So we started at what we thought was the shallow end with these very simple punning jokes, the kind of things you've just been listening to, because we thought those had some structure to them. We could see some simple patterns in them. And that was just a a first step along the road. So we weren't really trying to model a sense of humour, which is a much more subtle thing. We were just trying to figure out what the shape of jokes they are and how we can write rules that will describe those jokes. And we saw this as a one step on a very long road towards getting a, a better understanding of how jokes work. They are actually quite clever in the sense that when you when you see them, like, what do you call an enemy image? That's another one of your computer's jokes, a photo. Uh, I mean, they are quite clever, but they're not that funny. What, what theories do we have of actually what makes something funny? There's a bit of a a lack on the theoretical side. People have been writing about humour for centuries and it seems on the face of it that we have quite a lot of theories of humour, several. But when you examine them very closely, they're not what a, a natural scientist would call a theory. They tend to be very broad opinions about things that go on in humour. Can you reverse the equation, Graham, and You've got a computer program that will generate things like puns that have the potential to make us laugh. Didn't work on Sophie, but, you know, we're working on that. Can you turn it round and feed something into your computer program and it would know I was joking? Because if I said certain things to you, certain word orders or certain manner of speaking, you'd know I was punning at you. Can your computer do that? Not at the moment. And that's actually quite a difficult problem because... The the whole range of what you could in principle feed in is so vast that it's quite a, 
challenging task to figure out whether it's a joke or not because there could be so many different ways of making a joke. When you're generating, you can you're under you have the data under control. You're experimenting with exactly the area of humour that you want to look at, and that's all you're generating. So you can narrow down the focus to a particular genre of humour. When you're accepting input, then uh, it's much more difficult. You could it would be just an act of programming to write something which takes the jokes of the kind that are we generate and recognises exactly those kind of jokes and no other. Um, we could do that, but it wouldn't be very interesting because all we would be doing is just reversing the, the process. And if you fed it anything other than exactly that kind of joke, it would just say no, even if it was a very funny joke of some other kind. It's pretty important, isn't it? Because if we seek to use these sorts of systems in the future in engaging with people, whether it's the ATM machine for you getting money out or a telephone answer system or something, people are human and they do have humour. And humour is a very important part of our social interaction. That's what Sophie was saying. And if we don't have systems that are capable of understanding and modelling it, then we're not going to enjoy the engagement with models like you're creating. Well, that's that's true. And a lot of people have argued that if we're going to have avatars on our computer systems and our phones or our tablets that interact with us in a very natural, lifelike way, they're going to have to have the equivalent of a sense of humour because they're going to have to pick up if the, the user is being lighthearted or just making a joke. They're going to have to recognise that. And there's also an argument that says that maybe the, the intelligent agent on the on the device should maybe lighten up its own interactions with the occasional joke, though that's a bit more risky. Yes, it is. It could go wrong, couldn't it? Thank you for joining us and telling us about your joking robot. That was Graham Ritchie. He's from the University of Aberdeen. So while we still don't know exactly what makes some things funnier than others, do we know actually if laughter is a good thing? Uh, Sophie Scott is still with us. So Sophie, does laughter actually have benefits? Yes, it definitely de-stresses you. So what happens when you've been laughing is you get a bit of an endorphin kick because you've been doing some exercise. You also get a reduction in adrenaline, so you become less stressed. But also, over a longer time scale, you get a decrease in cortisol release. So that's a, a longer time sort of hallmark of becoming just less stressed generally. So it definitely is something that it doesn't just feel good. You are actually more relaxed and less stressed out at the end of it. Well, that's good to know then. Thank you very much. That was Sophie Scott. And a type of yoga does rely on this very idea. You force yourself to LOL and then you get some of these benefits. So earlier in the week, the Naked Scientist team had a little outing to their first ever laughter yoga session. Hi, my name's Zoe Harris and I teach laughter yoga. Laughter yoga can basically be boiled down to a series of funny exercises. So think of improv, think of acting in a foolish way and repetitive exercises that perhaps you don't find funny at first, but you soon will. (laughs) 
What the laughter is supposed to do, it has two um, effects on the body. So physically, you're inhaling a lot more oxygen, you're using more of your lung capacity, so it's oxygenating the blood, it's helping you feel more energised. It has a real positive um, effect on the body in terms of uh, psychological benefits as well because the process of laughing helps reduce the stress hormones in the body, so it's helping you feel less um, conscious, less anxious, more confident about yourself. Physically also, the process of laughing from the deep belly and the diaphragm, so you're exercising um, muscles internally, but especially your heart muscle as well. And it is said that your uh, one minute of laughter is worth 10 minutes on the rowing machine for your heart. So that's good news. literally tricking your brain into doing it so when you start a lot of exercises you think oh this is quite embarrassing I don't want to do it Uh, but you laugh anyway your body starts laughing so you just fake it till you make it really Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. It's interesting how you you switch from uh, the sort of artificial laughter to to somebody starting to crack, and then it just spreads uh, spreads around the room. And you do uh, yeah, you, you do really feel it in your feel it in your stomach afterwards. And, uh, you've definitely been laughing. Um, the highlight for me was the Hawaii. What was it? Aloha! <laughs> like that. And the bees. I quite like the bees. I think I'd do that at work if I was getting stressed about something. I thought the bees were really good as well. When you hum like a bee and you close your ears, it was quite odd. But, but I do feel a lot better than when I started. I've maybe gone from a kind of a pretty low 4 out of 10 up to kind of a 7. So, so that says something. It was really good. I was a bit worried of looking silly, but it's just a really nice time with nice people. So. I'm definitely going to practice it when I get home and freak out my housemates. <laughs> Zoe Harris there. So whatever your sense of humour, have a chuckle when you can. Thanks very much to all of our guests this week, Sophie Scott, Casper Adiman, and Graham Ritchie. And to finish, there's just time for our question of the week. And Tom Crawford has been investigating a real space oddity Submitted by Michael. If in some miraculous way one were able to pee standing on the surface of the moon, what kind of an arch would it create? Picture the scene. It's 1969. Neil Armstrong steps out onto the surface of the moon. But what's this? He's undoing his spacesuit and... Oh, Neil! Why didn't you go before you left the ship? So Neil Armstrong probably didn't take one giant leak for mankind, as Jim put it on Facebook. But let's imagine for a second that you could pee standing on the surface of the moon. What kind of arc could we expect to form? Here to help answer this astronomical question is Dr Chris Messenger from the University of Glasgow. The answer depends on the environment that you're in. If the astronaut is inside a pressurised and temperature-controlled environment, then the only difference between the moon and the Earth would be the gravity, which on the moon is 16% of the Earth's. This gives the rather boring answer that the pee would simply follow a straighter arc, or, in other words it would travel about two and a half times further than on Earth. So when I pee on Earth, what shape is the arc that forms? In a uniform gravitational field, the trajectory of an object, in our case, each unit of P, follows what's known as a parabolic curve, sort of a U-shape. On Earth, air resistance can cause objects to deviate from perfect parabolas, but on the Moon, since there's essentially no atmosphere, the P will follow a very accurate parabola. Right, let's assume we're on the Moon 
or even better, Neil Armstrong is there back in 1969 and he needs to boldly go. What would actually happen? Extremely low atmospheric pressure on the moon would immediately boil the pea. The steam would then fall to the floor under the moon's weak gravity because there's no atmosphere to carry the steam. Hang on. I thought the moon was cold. Why are things starting to boil? The particular state that a substance is in depends only on the temperature and pressure. If you think about water, the main component of your pea, we know, for example, that when you climb a mountain, the air pressure drops and the boiling point of water starts to drop. So at the top of Mount Everest, you can make a cup of tea at 71 degrees Celsius. In the peeing on the moon scenario, the pea is at body temperature, around 37 degrees Celsius, and the pressure in the spacesuit will hopefully be at Earth's atmospheric pressure. As soon as it enters the moon environment, the pressure drops by a factor of more than 1,000 billion. The pea suddenly finds itself way above its own boiling point and has to immediately boil into steam. If you think the idea of peeing out steam sounds bad, it gets even worse. After boiling, the steam molecules are able to react to the change in temperature between the spacesuit and the moon environment. Depending on the position of the sun in the lunar sky, the temperature on the moon's surface will range from minus 170 degrees Celsius to plus 120 degrees Celsius. But since the pressure is so low, the freezing temperature of the P also drops way below zero. So in some circumstances, the steam molecules could freeze into water ice crystals and you get yellowish snow that falls to the ground in a smooth parabolic arc. That would certainly be an interesting present for our alien friends. I hope that's answered your question, Michael. Next time, we delve into the minds of ants with Carol's question. We live in tropical North Queensland, Australia, where ants and getting rid of them is part of the day-to-day. When brushing them down the sink, I sometimes stop to watch them and I'm always intrigued by their socialising patterns. I want to know, are they sentient creatures? Do they feel pain? Thank you. What are your thoughts? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or join in the debate on our forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. That's all we've got time for this week. The producer was Georgia Mills. Join us next time when we go from LOL to LED, light-emitting diode, and ask what's the next big revolution in lighting. Do join us then. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by Rolls-Royce, the STFC and the EPSRC. I'm Chris Smith, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.